Shoat Rishaim is the kind of the destruction that comes at the hands of uh, of, uh, of uh, the, the, the wicked ones. You know, so it's, uh, um, the question: um, What do we call what happened? Though it's worth spending a couple of minutes on this at the beginning, the beginning of the hour. Um, and in fact, this question of what do we call what happened during the war uh, was raised in uh, the 1970s by none other than Rav Hutner, Rabbi Isaac Hutner. Rabbi Hutner uh, was just a word on the same, one on the same page. He was one of the giants of the yeshiva world. By that I mean not the modern Orthodox world, but the world of Torah Badas, Hamberlin, Beer, the Brooklyn yeshivas. There is Rose in Baltimore and so on. And he was, and, and that was an era of, and I'll use a word that's unknown to anybody, to anybody under the age of 50. He was a leader. He was a Jewish leader. And that was an era that, in which many of those Yeshivot had serious, serious leaders. And Rafutner was the dean of one of those Yeshivas, Chaim Berlin. Uh, and, um, and he got a question uh, from one of the rabbis. Exactly that question, this was the 1970s, approximately almost 30 years after the war, it's the early 1970s. That's unbelievable. And so one of the rabbis said, you know, same thing that I, I hear is Holocaust, it's Shoah, this and that. What do we call, what's the, what do we call this terrible thing that happened in the, in the war? And Rabbi Huttner took this question very seriously and he used it as a vehicle for exploring what is the Holocaust in the eyes of traditionally observant Jews. In other words, to him, what's the traditional approach to the Holocaust? That's a large, a large question. Um, uh, and uh, but I'll, let me cut to the chase. Rabbi Hutner gave a um, uh, he, he 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 wrote a tshuva responsum, which which actually was considered to be very important. It was translated and published as a special issue of the Jewish Observer, which was, it's no longer in business, but that was the official organ of, of Agudah in, in, in America. At one time it was a serious journal and it became a, kind of a, um, a vehicle for um, insipid hagiographies and moralistic screeds. It was really, really pretty awful, but in the, in the 1970s it was still pretty good. And, and, and what Ralph Huttner said, Kutner, by the way, is H-U-T-N-E-R, uh, Isaac Kutner, Yitzchak Kutner. What he said was, was that the Holocaust, you know, with all respect to the survivors in this, it's not unique in history. Jewish history is a, is a progression of, it's a cycle of Korban Geula, Korban Geula. Destruction, redemption, destruction, redemption throughout history, and the, the Holocaust is the latest of these, you know, of, of this, uh, you know, the latest destruction in this, in this cycle. You know, it's, it's awful, it's worse than anything else. Maybe it wasn't, maybe destruction of the temple, I don't know, you know, you can argue that, that back and forth. Um, one parenthetical observation on Ralph Hüttner is that he was very careful to say that, you know, there are those out there who want to assign a specific sin to as a reason for a specific destruction. And anybody who does that 
and this, this is a quote from Rafferty's Truba, is trampling on the graves of our grandfathers. What was he talking about? I'll tell you what he was talking about. This was a direct reference, even though it did not mention him, to the Satmar, who, who, who said, you know, they also brought into, you know, Horvin Gula, the same cycle, that the, holo- the, you know, uh, that the Holocaust is payback not only for our sins in general, but for the specific sin of Zionism. Rafutner, as was most of the others in the Sheep group, was A, was a Zionist, and B, he abominated the Sakhmer. That's a separate issue, whatever it is. So he was very careful, very careful of that. Now, Rabbi Hutner is important, not only because he positions the Holocaust in a discrete place, and agree with it or not, we're going to come back to this actually, but because he is a prime exponent of the Mipnechato um, Enu theology of Judaism. Um, because of our sins. That's a formulation that's taken from where? Anybody knows from where it is? It's from the Musaf service for the holidays. It's, you know, uh, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land, and by extension, all the other things that happened to us uh, in, in history. Um, whatever befalls us collecti- collectively is traceable to to our sins. And we're going to revisit this in our roundup of the thinkers uh, that I'm going to talk about because it's crucial. So just keep that in the back of your mind sometimes. If you're writing it down, put a little star next to it because we'll come back to it. Um, I want to talk about four, basically four or five, uh, you know, a lot of people have written about, have thought about the, you know, what, what I would call the theology of the Holocaust, philosophy. The, 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 four, the five I want to identify, uh, at least four of them are well known, one of them is not so well known, is uh, Rabbi Irving Greenberg, Gitz Greenberg, Eliezer Berkowitz, um, um, Richard Rubenstein, very important, Emil Fackenheim, of course, how could we not, and Hans Jonas, 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 J O N A S. We'll get to these guys. But before we get to theology, uh, we need to set a little bit of context. Uh, by the way, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to blah 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 blah. But to, don't hesitate to, you know, interrupt me, whatever, it is, or whatever it is, you know. Uh, just, uh, just don't throw things at me. Just, you know, just talk. Um, so the question in the first instance is, is in terms of context, when did the Holocaust reach the consciousness of American Jews, both individually and as a community? And the question is important in understanding when we start to think about why it happened rather than just what happened, the, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, history. And um, uh, you know, there's been some discussion about this recently, there's you know, a couple of books written about this. Uh, the, just to cut to the chase, because again, I could spend a whole hour to talk about this, it's, it's a fascinating topic, but everybody thought that it was the Eichmann trial in the 1960s. When the Eichmann trial was happening, everybody thought that this was going to be the turning point in terms of American Jews, the Holocaust. Indeed, that happened in Israel. It, the, uh, the trial, of course, took place in Israel, and the Holocaust became deeply embedded in Israeli consciousness, in the Israeli psyche after the iPhone trial, but it did not happen in the United States. I'm not going to go into that for whatever the reasons, but it did happen several years later. Uh, what 
triggered Holocaust consciousness in America, of course, was the Six Day War, 1967. Six Day War did a lot of things. It brought Israel to the consciousness of American Jews for the first time in a big way, which is incredible to think, you know, in the year, years of 2011, to the 1950s, uh, Israel was, but it wasn't. Israel was kind of a sideshow for American Jews. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. sign that campaign, yeah, this, that, but it was not, but it was Six Day War. But uh, amongst the things that that the Six Day War did do was, you know, the threat of imminent annihilation. This, I mean, those of us who are old enough to remember this, I'm the only one who was old enough to remember this, I know that, um, the, uh, you know, remember that this pervasive angst in the weeks before the, before the conflict itself, this threat of annihilation, um, and, and it recalled for many, not only survivors, but for everybody, you know, gee, this could happen again. And as a result, uh, again, that's a large topic, but basically what happened was that that, that Holocaust consciousness in America was, was, was uh, well, American Jews became conscious of the Holocaust. And that was actually nailed down. It was a gradual process. It didn't happen immediately, but well, you know, people started to think about it. There were first commemorations and so on and so forth. And, then, and that was nailed down approximately 10 years later. Many of us remember on television, um, you know, in the 1960s, not everybody had a television. By the late 70s, everybody had a television. And you remember Gerald Green's Holocaust, the television series. Nobody remembers it. Well, I got to tell you, that was that was watershed because if there was any Jew in America who wasn't thinking about the Holocaust after 1967, that Jew was as a result of the, of, of the television series was, was thinking. Anyway, not to go on and on. The um, uh, the uh, the um, uh, so that's uh, that's what would now. Um, Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, the Eichmann uh, trial took place in '59, didn't it? Yeah, '59, '60. Right, right, right. It, it was yeah, right. '59, '60. I don't remember when the, when the verdict came down. The verdict came down actually in '60. Not sure about that, but, but that, that was one of And and it, it did not result in much in, in America. Yes. Well, when, the, um, when the camps were liberated at the ends of the war, yeah. wasn't that all over the newspapers? Sure. Yeah. And, and did the Jews in America know the number six million? I mean, we well, the number six million. Well, look, I don't want to get involved in the numbers game. Uh, when the Jews in America know the number six million, uh, look, camps were liberated. There wasn't anybody who didn't know about it. It was all over the newspapers. But did it engender the consciousness? of the destruction of European Jews. Look, I, you know, I want to get involved in this a, a, a very large topic. Why did American Jews, you know, that's an interesting question, because inherent in your, in your observation is the question, why wasn't the Holocaust part of American Jewish consciousness uh, for, 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 for 20 years? You know, let me just short circuit this because we, we can't, cannot spend much, much, much time on this. The, look, a couple of things were going on. First of all, well-known, the survivors themselves just didn't want to talk about it. For whatever the reasons, psychological reasons, this, that, practical reasons, you know, they, they were, you know the, the, this is what, what we call the silence with capital S, uppercase S. And, and of course, American Jews, uh, uh, let's face it, you know, uh, were carrying around with them a lot of communal guilt, you know, the, it was that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we survived, and, you know, so it didn't end there. So the, um, uh, the social psychology 
of the American Jewish community coming into contact for the first time with substantial numbers of survivors, they were substantial, a couple of hundred thousand survivors. Uh, the, the, the result was very little discussion. There were a couple of synagogue commemorations. There was really very little going on. Uh, even with, I'll come to you in a second. You know, if you keep your hand up, you're going to get gangrene. Okay. So we don't want that to happen. Okay? I'll come to you in one second. So, so, because uh, it's actually a very good question. Why did not? And, and it's, uh, but the, anyway, yeah. Um, there was actually amongst American Jewish leaders, amongst Jewish rabbis who were well known, it's quiet, don't get into it, don't talk. There was um, a, a covenant of silence of let's not interfere, let's not get into it, let's not cause problems amongst American Jews here. That, that was it actually early. That was during the war. Yeah. It was during the war. I'm talking about what happened after the war when the survivors started showing up. Yes. You would have thought the Less Nuremberg trials might have. Uh, one would have thought. You know. One would have thought. But you know, it's, it, it, it was all. It all had to do with both the psychology of the survivors and the psychology of the American Jews who were here. And you know, American Jewish history. Uh, this is something that I've written about. Um, look, the uh, you know. We look at American Jewish history as a series of waves of immigrations. You know, first immigrations for the Sephardic Jews, the Amsterdam Jews, and then the middle of the 19th century, the German Jews, the late 19th century, a couple of million Russian Jews came over, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And then the next wave, of course, is the survivors after the war. And part of the pattern, you know, there are a number of patterns. One very sad pattern. Uh, sad story of American Jewish history is that every successive wave of immigrants has been has been treated poorly, has been ill-treated by previous, by the Jews who are already there. And this was no different with the survivors. And in fact, it, it was in some ways worse. That's a very large story. Maybe there were some reasons for it. Who knows? But, but that's Part of it. There were a lot of things going. On. Anyway, late, we could spend a whole hour on this. I, I'd love to, but we got to got to cover some ground here. Why did the Holocaust happen? That's really the, the question. That's the where was God question. Uh, uh, how could God have permitted the destruction of Jews of Europe? I mean, before the war, there were uh, almost eight and a half million Jews, 8.3 million Jews in Europe. That's the generally accepted figure. And in 1945, you know, there were communities here and there, but there were very few. Where was God? So I already discussed one, pro one approach, a historical approach of Ruf Wittner. It's historical, but it does have theological implications, so to keep that in mind. Now, you know, the, the idea that there is a theology of the Holocaust is a no-brainer today. Of course, you, know, you have to think about why things happened. Where was God? It was unthought of in the 1950s and 60s. Indeed, the idea that there was a history of the Holocaust was itself originally radical. You know, the first history, the war ends in 1945. When is the first serious history of the Holocaust published? Fifteen years later, Raoul Hilberg, there were a couple of smaller things, but Raoul Hilberg's big book, The Destruction of European Jews, you know, since then there were some marvelous works written. Uh, uh, the best, in, in, in my opinion, is, is Lucy Davidovich's book. Martin Gilbert's book is great. You know, those are the two giants, and of course the Gilbert. 1961, decade and a half after the war, uh, you know, before Hitler, the main iteration was a guy who's a 
forgotten today, but a very important historian in the 1950s, Ben Sion Dinur, he was an Israeli, and his claim was that, you know, the diaspora was meaningless. Jewish history begins with history, with the history of the state of Israel. You know, the goal of Jewish history is the establishment of the reestablishment of Judaism and Jewry in Eretz Israel, and the Holocaust is the final proof of the end goal of history of United Israel, and the Holocaust is the end of history of the diaspora period. And that's you know, um, so you get the idea that that was kind of the consciousness. Now. If we have the Holocaust as a historical reality, is it, is it a theological reality as well? That's what some thinkers were starting to think about in the 1960s. Beginnings of history of the Holocaust, it's a historical reality. Maybe it's a theological reality also. And the first iterations of what became known as a theology of the Holocaust, a where was God analysis, were those of Rabbi Irving Greenberg, Greenberg, and you know, many of us know Greenberg, he's a truly polymathic historian, innovative thinker, conceptualizer. And Richard Rubenstein, R-U-B-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, he's a, an idiosyncratic scholar who was at the vanguard of the God is Dead movement. Anybody remember the God is Dead movement in the 1960s? It was a very big deal. God, you know, came out of the Protestant world. We'll talk about that in a minute. Actually, let me talk about that now. Let me talk about Rubenstein first. Um, Richard Rubenstein, he wrote a truly watershed book, After Auschwitz, it's called, in 1966. Again, 66, it's 20 years after the war. Uh, it's a terrific book, it's sort of kind of strange. It's a wonderful book. After Auschwitz. After Auschwitz. After Auschwitz. Yeah, I think it's still in print. Rubenstein, what, what does Rubenstein say? It's Pushit. God was always a mistake. Uh, period. From the early 1960s, Rubenstein, by the way, Rubenstein, Richard Rubenstein started out life as a rabbi, a reform rabbi. Uh, and and he's, he has, he's actually a bit of a, what we call the Odea Sefer, he knows some, some text. And uh, uh, there was never a God, asserted Rubenstein, and what the Corbin did. Oh, by the way, you just used the word Corbin. Hold, hold this thought. Let me go back to Rabbi Hudner, because I never gave you Rabbi Hudner's answer. You know, but remember Rabbi Hudner, his question was, what do we call the Holocaust? So Hudner says, listen, if this is a cycle of Kurmudullah, Kurmudullah, you know, there's nothing special about the Holocaust. So, so terms like Holocaust and certainly Shoah don't mean anything to Orthodox Jews. We Jews, said, said he, call the destruction of European Jewry exactly that. It's the destruction of European Jewry, the Kurmudullah. And indeed, when I was a kid, grew up, uh, we referred to uh, what went on as either the Hurban or the Milchama, right? The war, the Milchama. So, uh, sorry, I didn't momentary lapse. Anyway, getting back to, to, to Rubenstein. So, Rubenstein, there was never a God, and, and what the Hurban did was to make clear to us that there was no God. There was no God of providence, which is what God is supposed to be all about. And indeed, this fit in very nicely with, this was all the rage in the 1960s, especially Protestant, the radical, the world of radical Protestant theology. It was a whole God is dead movement. Uh, so God is dead, does this mean that God was once alive and is now dead? No, said Rubenstein, there was never a God of providential history. 
If it isn't the case now, the Holocaust, it was never the case, period. Um, now, when it's, there was actually a stage two of Richard Rubenstein's thinking. He actually, his own thinking evolved. Basically, God makes a bit of a comeback in as sort of, yeah, there is some kind of God, but he calls it a holy nothingness. An impersonal being, holy nothingness. Great phrase. It's a kind of an impersonal being in the universe. He says that God was present in the biblical period, in our infancy, um, but disappeared shortly thereafter. And, uh, you know, where does Rubenstein come from? You know, that's not our topic. It's, it's, uh, it's really, you know, there's a lot of Freudian stuff going on here. It's all shrink time. Uh, God is explained away as a function of of the infantile needs of society. Anybody read it, you know, when you were kids, you read Freud's Totem and Taboo. It's all out of Totem and, totem and, and Taboo. Um, but Judaism to Rubenstein, see, he, Richard Rubenstein does see a positive function for, for Judaism. It's a system in which, and to use his words, we huddle together on this cold planet in order to keep us warm. So, Rubenstein embraces Judaism, just doesn't embrace God. Um, to many in the Jewish community, Rubenstein's uh, thesis was the Holocaust what Hannah Arendt was like. That's a separate, separate question. Let me um, move from, I'll come back to Rubenstein in a bit. Let me move, you, we have a lot of ground to cover. Let me move to, to, to the next guy, uh, and that's Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Irving Greenberg. Uh, Yitz Greenberg, these two guys were writing around the same time. These two guys were the first to suggest, to assert that there's not only a history of the Holocaust, but there's a theology of the Holocaust. It's not only a historical reality, but there's a theological reality. Greenberg rejects the God is dead theology. More important, he rejects the right? because of our sins, reading of the Chorban. God did not force the Jews to follow the halakha, the normative system. Our pact with God is covenantal, right? A covenant, you know, you agree to do certain things, I agree to do certain things, that's what a covenant is all about. And therefore, the Holocaust was not a punishment, not a covenant. But, as was the case with other catastrophes that have befallen us, you know, destruction of temples, you know, after which there was no more prophecy and then no more sacrificial service, uh, the Jewish people are further distanced from God. I'll come back to that historical thing in a minute. What's, what's Greenberg's view? He does not deny the existence of God, but his view is, is yet radical. Greenberg's main insight vis-a-vis the Holocaust is that God violated the terms of the covenant. He, God broke the covenant. He unilaterally broke the covenant by not acting to protect Israel. And God's failure was of such magnitude as to free the human party to the covenant, Israel, Jews, from the obligations that we took vis-a-vis him. Him with a uppercase H. This said, the Israel, after the Holocaust, Israel, Jews, chose to take up the covenant voluntarily uh, after the Holocaust. Yitz's term for the current, current era 
of Jewish history is that of the voluntary covenant, as he's termed, voluntary covenant. Um, um, so, so Yitz Greenberg, because Yitz Greenberg says that the covenant as we know it has now been broken by God, what exists now is a voluntary covenant on the part of the Jews. The Jews need to continue to observe the mitzvot, um, but it's not voluntary. God no longer has the moral authority to direct people to follow his will. Excuse me. I, I know Rabbi Greenberg is very from man. Yes, he is. Yes. Where, where did he write this? Oh, he's written this in a number of places. He, he has uh, an article, a long article, and also a book called um, Hi. Sorry. It's okay. Have a seat. Um, it's called uh, Pillar of Fire. What's it called? Uh, um, uh, Pillar of Fire, comma something something. So it's easy to find. And, and he lays it out in detail in this, in this book. So he also has a little article with the same, a similar title. The, the entire the title of the book will come to me in a minute. But, but you can easily, easily find it. Yeah, he's, 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 he's an Orthodox rabbi and like that. And no, he says, you know, you've got to observe the missiles, but hold the covenant is now voluntary. Hashem no longer has the moral authority. Yes, quick question. Well, why does Rabbi Greenberg think that God did not protect? Let me come to that right now. Let me ask that question. He never answers that, but he, he develops a theory of history which suggests something. How does he know that he didn't protect the Jews? He's still alive, we're right here. Yeah, <laughs> but the Jews of Europe were destroyed. We're yeah. Here. The Jews of Europe were destroyed. But the throughout the, the Bible, he destroys Jews. But throughout the, the, the Torah always says, and, and all the writings always teach, that God has promised that he will always protect and sustain a certain amount of Jews. It never says, and it says, I will keep some of you alive. It never says any place that I will protect all of you, going well, back to all the writings. You know, I don't want to go into this particular point, because this is the question of what, the, the very, there are any number of covenantal formulations, and they're very different one from the other, which stays accurate. But there are other formulations as well. But anyway, let me, let me, let me continue on here. And there might be a hint of an answer to your question. There is no answer to your question. But let me suggest something here. See, the notion of the voluntary covenant is, is tied up with, with it's Greenberg, Robert Greenberg. But the idea of three ages of Jewish history. He lays out three ages. And, and it's Greenberg's reading of Jewish history is that of a progressive diminution of God's role and Conversely, or the obversely, increasing responsibility and autonomy of the human party to the covenant. Jews, Israel. So, how did that play out? In the biblical age, the first age, God was clearly the senior partner, he was the active partner of the covenant, and you know, a lot of intervention. Israel was the relatively passive and very much the junior partner. The second age, in the rabbinical age, so so here, what happens? You have a couple of destructions of temples, and you have the end of prophecy, which is very important, and the end of the sacrificial service, and and there's no more. There is. Uh, 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 and 
in the rabbinical age, the age of Chazal, right, the time of the rabbinic leadership, uh, sees a much more equalitarian relationship between God and Israel. And, and indeed, the rabbis, the rabbinic leadership, are invested by God with substantial communal authority. Don't forget, if there's one thing that, that's a hallmark of the rabbinic age and of you know, those of the present day, is that we Jews have raised interpretation to the level of authority. We have an interpretive tradition. So the relationship, to use the word I used a minute ago, is much more equalitarian. Um, um, and God kind of diminished. The third period, which really comes into its own in the wake of the Holocaust, and we will discuss this in detail, sees the human partner by now the senior partner. And, and of course it goes under the, the name of the voluntary covenant. And one of the ways in which God um, accomplished this, and it was all according to Peter by design, is by him, he himself breaking the covenant in, in the Holocaust and not protecting the Jews. Now, for Yitz, Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Greenberg, if the leadership in the first era was that of priests and kings, and in the second era it was Chazal, you know, the rabbinic leadership, uh, Talmud, you know, that five, six, seven hundred year period. The third is we moved away from that to the secular, to a secular leadership, um, both in Israel and in North America, which are the two main dispensations in you know, the European age, which wishes to use that at an end. So you have two dispensations there. Sovereignty of Israel, pluralism of America, and and the leadership, of course, is um, so rabbis in general take a backseat to generals and politicians and philanthropists and so on and so forth. Now, let me move on, move along here. Um, Rabbi Greenberg argues that the divine is now much more hidden than he was, and plays itself out in the forces of modernization and secularization. For most Jews, of course, God simply is not there. For the very firm, for the very observant, God is all, is everything. And this is one way, one way in which this plays out, is the refusal to countenance Zionism. And I mention this because to Rabbi Greenberg, this is one of the few answers. The only answer is to, for modern, for contemporary Jews, is for Jews to assert, reassert their, their, uh, their our power, the way we do this is in, uh, in, in Israel, uh, creation of an Israel in Israel. Um, not that Robert Greenberg is running to join the settlers, he is not. Um, what about that? Greenberg rejects this completely. Because of our sins, this in effect accuses Jews of crime. You know, what kind of crime? Zionism? Assimilation? It's a kind of crime that can in no way justify the destruction of European Jewry. Assimilation? Can a sin like that validate the destruction of this scope? Certainly not, according to Rabbi Greenberg. Additionally, you know, the, the, the other side, of course, is that uh, the opposite side of the coin is that Rabbi makes God into a monster. And, you know, not my kind of God, says Rabbi Greenberg. I'll, I'll take a pass on that. And um, 
the, the, the theologians, you know, I want to move on to, to the others, though, the other Berkowitz and the others, which is one, you know, uh, you know, this is 40 years now, more than 40 years since Rubenstein and Greenberg uh, you know, began discussing what they were doing and, and, and their writings, you know, uh, and the theologians have been arguing endlessly about, about the differences between it's Greenberg and Richard Rubenstein, and of course it's different, you know, Rubenstein, God is dead, Greenberg, God is very much alive, but both covenant, he's hidden, and so on and so forth. Uh, the question is, is there that much of a difference between Greenberg and Rubenstein? Um, you know, both affirm that Jewish values, as Rubenstein said, you know, can keep us warm as we huddle together on a cold planet in a remote corner of a remote galaxy, you know, uh, such that uh, uh, um, so it's uh, but okay. Um, the the question of, of uh, the differences between the two um, uh, is uh, is uh, is uh, is a question. Um, um, okay. Let me uh, move to uh, uh, two others, two, two, two other major guys, of course, Elias Berkowitz and Emil Fackenheim. But before I talk about Berkowitz, I want to say one quick word about Hans Jonas, J-O-N-A-S, Jonas, Jonas, who's completely forgotten. He was major theologian. Jonas was kind of a, he was a fascinating guy. He was born, he was, his life pretty much spanned the 20th century. He was born in Germany in 1903, and then he went to, to Palestine, the Yishuv, uh, when he was a kid, when he was a youngster, and, and then he fought in the British Army in World War II, and then he came back to Palestine to the New State of Israel and fought in 1948 war in Shach, and he hung out for a while at Hebrew University where he taught, hated it there, came to America, and he spent the rest of his career mostly at, at the New School, New School of Social Research, right? Downtown, and that's where he came to his own. He was a, he was, he was a very interesting guy, uh, fascinating guy. He, he died around 10 years ago. And his, his idea is that, is that, uh, um, God uh, created a cosmos, and then it's, it's in some ways it's a, it's a little bit Lurianic, Hasidic. Uh, although trust me on this, Hans Jonas was not Hasid; he was 100% a Yeke. Uh, he uh, God created this cosmos, and then he had to engage in symptom, kind of diminishing himself, to enable the cosmos to function. Got the ball rolling, then he does this symptom. So God remains, there's, there's a hint of Rubenstein here, hint of Hasidus. Uh, God remains as a parent in the hopes and dreams of his children. And of course the main child is, is Israel, the Jews. Um, but it's the nature of the cosmos, that, the very nature of the cosmos that he, God, set up, that he can't intervene, he simply cannot intervene. And 
this allows, this whole idea allows for a God who can be, who feels close to us, you know, we're his children, but he could not intervene in the Holocaust. Um, uh, Jonas is very important because because Jonas's idea of a of a symptom of a non-intervention leads directly to Eliezer Berkowitz. Eliezer Berkowitz is really the third great theologian of the Holocaust. He was an Orthodox thinker, an Orthodox rabbi, very important uh, Orthodox leader, long forgotten, but he was hugely influential 40 and 50 years ago. His, his writings, by the way, are being republished now by the Shalem Center in, in, in Israel. And it's, uh, I have to look at a couple of old essays, and they're quite remarkable. Berkowitz maintains, uh, probably Hans Jonas taught him to say this, Berkowitz maintains that God did not intervene in the Holocaust, indeed did not intervene in history, because such intervention would undermine human freedom. To Berkowitz, the number one value, the number one principle that governs human activity is a basic orthodox, basic Jewish idea, Chirach of Shit, right? Free choice, human freedom, and God chooses to remain hidden for him to reveal himself in history, to intervene with tyrants, to intervene at all, would, if that would happen, human free will would no longer exist. Now Berkowitz is complicated, because Berkowitz has this whole discussion uh, about, you know, he has, a, Berkowitz has an ear for two kinds of people, and those who lost their faith, and those who maintained their faith. I want you to pay attention to this because it will resonate in a couple minutes with Fock and I. So he asks, what credence do I give? You know, here I, here I am, you know, family was wiped out of the Holocaust. What credence do I give to those who gave up on God? These are his words. What, it was sitting in the cafes, um, but they gave up on God in light of the testimony of those 10,000, tens of thousands in the camps who maintained the faith, their faith. See, in previous destructions, Jews managed to maintain their faith. That's historically partly accurate, partly inaccurate. It's mostly accurate. Berkowitz argues for the existence of God and for God's non-intervention. And to Berkowitz, it's redemption that saves the system. In this, he's like Ralph Whitner. Uh, the fact that a restoration came about Israel, a new vitality for Jews in many places, especially America, English-speaking lands in general, actually, is what allows us to see the Holocaust as fitting into a pattern of destruction and redemption. So in that sense, he's not unlike what I outlined earlier with Ruffler. But, important distinction, crucial distinction, Berkowitz is with Greenberg on the Mibnei Chata'enu question. No mivnei chata'enu. It's a desecration. This is the word he uses. Mivnei chata'enu is a desecration. We're up to me. I'm removed from the service. Um, He doesn't buy it. Free will is paramount. Um, Finally, there's... Oh, let me just mention one other guy who was actually influential in his time, but uh, uh, since we're doing this kind of Cook's tour of a lot of different thinkers, uh, 
Um, there was a, an, a very prominent reform rabbi in England, actually, Ignaz, Ignaz Maybaum. He was also a German who uh, managed to uh, leave uh, Germany in the 1930s and became a rabbi in, in England, a reform rabbi in England. And he picks up the, the you know, the prophet Isaiah has this whole thing about the suffering servant as, you know, atoning for, for sins that, that Israel community of Israel, Jews are the suffering servant. And 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 Maybaum extends this idea, this idea, this biblical idea from, from the prophetic idea from, from Isaiah, from Ishayahu, uh, to the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the ultimate atonement in which the Jews become the suffering servant for the entire world. So the Jews, the destruction of the Jews is vicarious atonement for the sins of of mankind. A tough one for to swallow, but he was very influential uh, in, in, his, uh, in his time. His, his time was you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, the, the other one I'll mention, you know, which uh, is, I'll mention because it's an utter outrage, but it's, it's worth mentioning anyway before I get to Fackenheim, is uh, we all know of Rav Kook, well, Rav Kook's son, Tzvi Yehuda Kook, who's the, one of the, uh, you know, set the, in large measure, the religious and ideological underpinning of the orthodox end of the settler movement, right, the Kushamanim, the settler movement, uh, the idea of desecration to give up one inch of, you know, of, of uh, territory in, in Judah and Samaria. Um, so, uh, Tzvi Yehuda Kook did it well. He, he talked about the Holocaust also in the same context. And he said that, that the Holocaust had function, it was uh, preparation for the state of Israel. Holocaust was necessary for the state of Israel to be, to be, um, to be created. Um, so as far as Tzvi Yehuda Kook goes, you see, there are many problems with Tzvi Yehuda Kook. Uh, A, it's, you know, you know, it's an abomination. Did he say this after Rav Cook had already died? Rav Cook died before the war. No, no. So this is the old, old, okay. The, the, yeah, yeah. Cook's uh, all the stuff comes out after the Six Day War, and the 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 the, the, the settler movement. The settler movement did not begin with 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 Mizrahi being hijacked by the crazies. The settler movement actually began with the uh, parties of the left, Achdud Avodah, moving right after 1967. They said go there. But then. Then in 1973, 1972, 1973, uh, the Gush Emunim faction of what was then Mizrahi kind of hijacked Mizrahi. Mizrahi was very responsible, centrist, Gush Emunim crazies, fueled by Tzvi Yudu Kuk, and a couple of other rabbis um, you know, moved in with, a, with a vengeance. And this was part of his, his, his ideology. Of course, this feeds into a side issue, but it's worth mentioning anyway, how am I doing on time? Yeah, we still have a few minutes. Um, uh, worth mentioning, you know, the, see, Rabbi Cook, the younger Rabbi Cook's um, discussion of this leads into um, this whole thing. Ah, Israel came out of the Holocaust. Israel came out of the Holocaust. I think that you know we should think about this, and whenever we hear Israel came out of the Holocaust, we all should say, as you know, a Briggan should say whatever he or she wants to say. But I would recommend that we all should say, no, 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 it did not come out of the Holocaust. To say that is, is a terrible thing to say, for two reasons. First of all, 
to say that Israel came out of Holocaust is to, is to deny the validity, the existence of a Zionist movement that was in business for a hundred years, you know, and, and, and by extension, a whole history of uh, Jewish uh, yearning for Zion and so on and so forth. But very specifically, the movement itself, you know, um, that's, that's very important. Um, the, the other thing is that, you know, when, when, when people tell me, oh, Israel came out of the Holocaust, I, I usually say, Israel was created not out of the Holocaust, but despite the Holocaust. The Holocaust orphaned a, our Zionist movement. I mentioned earlier, you know, 8.3 million Jews in Europe before the war. And the entire Zionist leadership and all the cadres and all the Zionists, and everybody, they were all destroyed, you know, to relatively tiny portion of people who happened to be in Palestine and happened to be in the United States. And despite the Holocaust, the state of Israel came to be. So I think that's that's very important. I mean, close parentheses. Arlene, quick question. Yeah. Um, where does anybody have the explanation of that this was foretold, like that if God said to us, if you don't listen to my commandments, all these horrible things? Now the assimilation in Germany, right before the Holocaust, intermarriage was 65 percent. They were thinking of doing away with circumcision. The the synagogues started shopping services. Some of the more radical reformers changed right. Sunday. Could that, is, is there anybody who discusses that? Yeah, well, it's in, 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 yeah, you see, in some of the more extreme um, of the of the orthodox interpretations, you know, so, so the Satra says it was Zionism, but others say, there were other Rabbanim who say, listen, it came out because of our contemporary word assimilation, but it's what, what you're talking about, that there were the sins of the Jews of Europe who were doing awful things, and and their payback was the Holocaust. It's awful, but I'm just recording the news here. Okay, finally, Fackenheim, Emil Fackenheim. Uh, yeah. Okay, right, I'll, I'll write it down, write it down here. Oh, yeah, we don't have any blackboards anymore. This is terrible. This is the kind of stuff that gives you cancer. This is a... Uh, what ever happened to chalk and blackboards? Oh, God. Emil Fackenheim.
from a transcendent being, a God, who said that this 614th commandment saves the essence of the 613. That's why it's not separate. That's why Fakhan always referred to it as the 614th, connected up with all the other 613. 613 doesn't, doesn't mean anything unless it's 614. Um, now, you know, there are other thinkers, of course, uh, who, um, who think about the Holocaust. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, for example, Rav. Um, uh, the Holocaust, he, he never wrote about the Holocaust explicitly. It's somewhere in the penumbra of his consciousness. You know, there are references to, obviously, in some of the Rabbi Salvation's writings, you know, Kolo di Dofeg, which is this wonderful, very moving thing about, about Israel, that you know, God knocks at the door of his beloved six times, and the sixth knock is the Holocaust, and as a result, that statement. But there's, there's, nothing, there's no theology of the Holocaust. But I can't help thinking. Nobody's written about this, but my sense is, you know, if you look at at Rabbi Soloveitchik's, Rabbi Soloveitchik's early writings in the 1940s, Isha Halacha, his great essay of 1941, 1943, whatever, um, which is very, you know, the philosophers talk about it as being neo Kantian, it's very, you know, neo Platonist, very rational. And then fast forward to the mid 1960s. 19, early 1940s, fast forward to the 1960s, The Lonely Man of Faith, which is a very deep, moving, um, existential, is what it is. I can't help thinking that that Soloveitchik's shift from this very rational to this existential is at some level a deep response to the destruction of European Jewry. Um, that's purely speculative, you know. The, I tell you, I was a student of Rabbi Salvage, and you know, I never, I'm sorry, I never asked him about it. I should have, but you know, I don't know that anybody did. You know, we weren't thinking about those things. Um, uh, oh, we still have a few minutes, so let me let me spend a minute. any observations, questions, anything about this. What would you Right, what would you Rebbe? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I know what about you Rebbe talked about Holocaust. Um, uh, I don't know specifically, I do know that Lubavitcher also had a problem with Mibnei Chatanin. But I think that with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I seem to recall, you know, I, 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 don't, know, I, I don't know that he had theology of but I seem to recall that the Rebbe's problem with Mibnei Chatanin was, um, he was using it as a vehicle by which to beat the Satmarebbe over the head. Because the Satmarebbe, of course, was very much, you know, as I said earlier, you know, it's not only the Satmarebbe, it's that very old kind of, you know, I'm going to see this, you know, it's the sin of Zionism, it's the sin of this, it's of that, mainly Zionism. And the Rebbe didn't like that, so he, he, had, he had strong things to say about the uh, But it's a good question, the answer is, I don't know. I don't think he had a, a, a discrete theology of the uh, Most of the Orthodox responses, when I, when I say Orthodox, I don't mean modern Orthodox, I mean you know, the, the uh, more uh, sectarian Orthodox uh, responses are along the lines of Ralph Hitler. He was the one who articulated for the sectarian world, the uh, whole structure. Uh, his, his essay is worth reading. 
Um, it's, you know, you find it in any good Jewish library, you know, Jewish Observer, it's 1977, I think. I think it's called, you know, Holocaust or something like that. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. Yeah, he, his, 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 his analysis of history is, is, is crazy. He spends several pages talking about, about mostly you know, this and that, you know, put that aside. And it gets down to, you know, the cyclical ideas. It's very good. Um, uh, a couple of words about the Christians. Um, the, um, the most recent, I guess, iteration of a Christian uh, idea, Christian theology, uh, Catholic theology, uh, comes from uh, Josef Ratzinger. Who's Josef Ratzinger? Anybody know who Josef Ratzinger is? The Pope! Exactly, Pope Benedict. Uh, Benedict XVI. Uh, and uh, he, he, the Benedict XVI, you know, he's, uh, he's bumbled around a little bit with, with in terms of the Jews. He's kind of, kind of um, says, you know, says and does things that are embarrassing to to uh, to the Catholics uh, in terms of Jews and Muslims, whatever it is. But but Ratzinger had a whole career, a long career. You know, he's no kid. A long career as the, um, I guess you would call it the intellectual resident house intellectual of the Vatican. He was the, uh, uh, he's, he's a brilliant man. I met him actually many, many years ago and I was staggered by, by this guy. He was, it was a long time ago, maybe 30 years ago. So, uh, and he, um, uh, uh, he, he was for many years the, uh, while, while he was the cardinal in the Vatican, he was the, the head of the Vatican office called the office for the uh, the, the doctrine of faith. I think that's what it's called. That's some kind of fancy name like that, which nobody can figure out what that means. It's actually what we used to know four or five hundred years ago as the Holy Inquisition. It's actually actually what it is. And he was the you know the official the official inquisitor of, of the church. He's deeply conservative theologically, uh, and he. He wrote about this um, some years ago, before he became Pope, and it was when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, Josef Ratzinger, J. I'll write his name down. Ratzinger. He was very tough as a cardinal, very doctrinaire. Um, uh, he was known by other priests, and not, you know, not by us, but by other priests. He was known as God's Rottweiler. No, Rottweiler is <laughs> not, uh, God's Rottweiler. So you get the idea. Yeah. Just, we're, we're talking about, you know, not a nice guy. You don't give him shlishi, right? Okay. So, um, does he know Hebrew? Yes, he does. Biblical Hebrew. He knows it very well indeed. I don't think he's a fluent Hebrew speaker. You know? I mean, we wouldn't do well in cafes in Tel Aviv. You know? <laughs> I've got to tell you, I'm completely fluent in Hebrew. I mean, I translate books from Hebrew to English. I, I stand on the street in Israel you know, with a group of kids, not kids, people under 30, and I don't have a clue. Not a clue as to what they're talking about. <laughs> so my 15 year old son is standing with me, and of course he translates for me everything that's going on, which is, uh, you know, brought up to smart. That's great. So um, um, Ratzinger uh, says that it was basically a hatred of God 
this pervasive hatred of God um, uh, that that um, uh, the um, a hatred of God and a desire to exalt human power. These two things coming together that led that had terrible consequences, the worst consequences. Did you hate hatred? Everybody, everybody was hating God. Well, especially the, you know, the found expression in the Nazis. But he said it was an era in which people just didn't like God, especially the Nazis. And the Nazis was played out with this exaltation of human power, and the result was universal destruction and especially destruction of of the Jews. Um, uh, it's very hard to connect dots. So I'm just quoting what he says. There's no explanation in Ratzinger for what we want to know. What's our question? Where was God? There's no explanation. Ratzinger doesn't know an explanation. Where was where was God? Uh, and the, the the Catholics have not have not yet come out with from their perspective. I'll come to you in a second. Satisfactory. Um, a satisfactory response to the Jews in terms of their own theology of the Holocaust. Uh, yeah, so before I go into that, I want to read you some. Yeah, well, well, but does he always like use this being uh, to hide behind the Hitler Youth and he says everyone had a dream? Is that accurate? I'm, I'm sorry. He, 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 it was brought out that he was a member of Hitler Youth. Yeah, everybody was. So everybody was. So yeah, he's always saying that. that. So yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, listen, there are a lot of other pot shots that one could take at, at Ratzinger, and, mm -hmm. and many of them are even deserved in terms of his, of, of certain theological things that he said, that he has said about you know, Judaism, Judaism, the catechism, this and that. But then, listen, uh, you know, what was going on in Germany in the 1930s, mm -hmm. you know, yes, it is true that the people enthusiastically embraced Hitler. So. I'm a hardliner when it comes to that. I don't think we can let the Germans off the hook. But the fact is, Ratzinger's right. You know, everybody joined. You know, with, you know, this, you know this. yes, yeah. Does he ever address why it was the Jews that were persecuted? He doesn't address that. Why it was why it was Dafka the Jews? He does not go down the road. He's very careful to avoid to avoid. Um, um, scapegoating the Jews for the other sins. You see, this is a very nuanced issue because, don't forget, Ratzinger was a Vatican, you know, um, functionnaire, a very high-level Vatican person. And he, like everyone else in, in, the, in the world of the Vatican, the papal world, and everybody else, for that matter, in Christendom, in Catholic Christendom, was bound to follow. You know, Catholicism is 100% hierarchical, right? The Pope, this and that, and then it comes down to you. You know, that's it. You know, so everyone in Christendom was bound to follow the the dictates of Vatican II, of the document Nostra Aetate, right, which is the Vatican document. I taught this actually years ago. Vatican document that. Um, that <coughs> articulated the change to the nature of the relationship between Catholics and Jews. And basically, the Kitzer, it uh, rejected the charge of the aside and, um, and uh, said explicitly that 
that, uh, that Christian-based antisemitism that was 100% theological is no longer in place um, and uh, you, you get the idea. So, 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 so Ratzinger, in talking about things like the Holocaust, had to be very careful about that. Now, you see, some years ago, um, how are we doing that? Oh, we go until 2.15, correct? Mm -hmm. So we have a few minutes left, it's good. See, s some years ago, uh, it was actually the 1990s, um, the, this was when Wojtyla, John Paul II, uh, who was actually a good guy, you know, in, 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 in terms of, I mean, John Paul II did some pretty dreadful things, and his Valheim was awful, and Arafat, but did many good things. I'll give you one good example, because um, it leads into this. I, I just mentioned about Nostra Aetate, so, um, so that's fine, you have this document, how's this going to play, play, play out? And you know, for many years, the, Catholic hierarchy was kind of diddling around, you know, gee, how, how are we going to, how are we going to, how's this going to, you know, how are we going to uh, make this work in churches around the world, you know. So, uh, John Paul II, shortly after he became Pope, said, listen, enough of this nonsense, we've got to do something here. One of the first things he did was he directed uh, he issued a papal letter, not an encyclical, but the one below encyclical is a letter addressed to the priests, parish priests. And he said, guys, this coming Sunday, every priest in Christendom is going to deliver a homily, a sermon on anti-Semitism. Unprecedented, 2,000 years of Christendom. And they all did. They had to. That's you know hierarchy, you know. The guy told speaks and that's it. So you know, so th that's the kind of thing. So here's the point. Um, uh, he, he you know, listen, you know, uh, which he was a pole, right? He was a pole, and he had this kind of very intimate relationship with, you know, it's been everybody's written about this with these Jews that he grew up with, and you know, and that kind of stuff, and this relationship with the Holocaust, you know, uh, you know, he wasn't like you know Pacelli, you know, who was you know. Ambiguous at best, you know. Which he was, he was right there, and he said, you know, uh, we had no Tate, Fine, that was in the early 60s. It was 1966. It's a couple of decades down the pike. Got the church has got to do something about the Holocaust. We did something about anti-Semitism, deicide. Great. I'm working on that. Now it's time to do something about the Holocaust. So he said, we're going to issue a a um, a Vatican statement, again, not an encyclical, but a statement, on, on the Holocaust. And um, originally it was supposed to be some comprehensive thing about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, and it was just narrowed to the Holocaust. And this thing came out, and uh, you know, I actually I spoke at the conference in which it came out, uh, it was 1990, 1998. Something like that. Uh, 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 yeah, 1998, right? And and it was uh, you, 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 it's it's available. You know, you go online and, and you get it. You read it through, and it's it's you know. Does anybody hear another word? Parva. 
You know what parva means? Parva. Right? You can't translate. It's parva. The statement is parva, and uh, and and um, it. Uh, you know, it has a whole. It, it's all about. It's all about what Catholics need to know about the Holocaust. What what we must remember. It's called is that that section. Uh, the duty of remembrance by Catholics, which is very important, we must remember, and by extension, the question of, of Christian education on the Holocaust, and how priests have got to be educated on this, and then, of course, how this is, has to use the Holocaust to enhance relationship between Jews and Christians, and, and there's a discussion about Nazi anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and where that came from, and it acknowledges that that you know, it wasn't all only focused, you know, uh, German uh, historical anti-Semitism came out of the church as well, and so on and so forth. Looking together toward a common future is a very big deal, and and such. Um, it's very nice. Uh, it's nice stuff, but I got to tell you, it's it's baloney. Why do I say that? Because. The thing is called "We Remember." By the way, we, we remember a reflection on the Holocaust, and you should read it. You know, don't take my word. We, we, we read this online. It's it's a terrific response to on the Holocaust to the Catholics. It's not the the response to the Jews from the Catholics on the Holocaust is yet to be forthcoming. There's no discussion. There's no discussion of what we've been talking about. What, from the perspective of Christian theology, um, is the Holocaust all about? You know, where was the Christian God? You know, th- th- those kinds of questions. There's, unless I'm missing something, and I don't think I was missing anything, it's completely, it's completely silent, um, silent on that. So, uh, this is worth reading, by the way, because you know, we, you know, it's not a bad idea for. We Jews to know what, what the Christians are thinking about, about certain things, especially in a relationship in, in an era in which, in which uh, you know, whatever is going on with Vatican, there are always problems here and there, but, you know, uh, American Catholic Jewish relations are, uh, are, uh, are very good. They're very warm, they're very cordial, and for many good reasons, having to do with coming together on the public affairs agenda, on Israel, and on this, on that, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff there. There's, so, um, um, okay, uh, um, let me wrap up with a final comment. I'll tell you, you know, a good place to go back, of course, is to, uh, is to uh, Fackenheim and, uh, and his whole idea, you know, whatever you might think about the, the theological notion of God being present in Auschwitz, and that, by the way, generated a major debate by Jewish thinkers. What? Auschwitz, you know, this has no, no place for God at all in Auschwitz. You, you may remember the big Tararam in the early 1990s of the question of the, from the Carmelite nuns, convent actually, you know, the was very active in this. Yes, we were very active. And, 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 you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, because remember what the thing was, they wanted to put a cross, a big cross, on, actually on Auschwitz grounds, because they had a, their, their convent was abutting Auschwitz, and, 
And we, okay, so the question is, of course, actually on the ground, Sebastian, it's not, you know. And Yitz Greenberg and others were making the point, the valid point in my view, is that, that there's, there's, there's nothing sacred about Auschwitz. It's not a sacred place. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible place. It's a place that's been abominated by history, by the actions. It's no place for Jews. It's no place for Christians. You can, maybe we can use Auschwitz as a place for Christian Jewish understanding, but in terms of religion, you know, we would never want to have a shul there. And the Christians shouldn't want to have a cross there. Um, and, and that was Rabbi Bloomberg's position, which I think is is the correct is is the is the is the correct position. And of course, it's 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 so it's very difficult to square that with Fackenheim, who said that you know God actually was present afterwards in fact the whole place. Yeah. Yes, and there's some uh, Jews I understand uh, that are choose to get married in Auschwitz. Why? Mm. Why? I don't know. The door to door, you know, it's preservation of the generations, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Look, it's a it's a fucking high statement, exactly, right? Did they make this? You know, Joshua might give Hitler a posthumous victory. I think there are other ways of doing it, but that's why you listen. You know, that, that's uh, you know, that's uh, kind of thing. But but you see, what what I take away from Fackenheim is 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 uh, what, what I said earlier is the preservation of the 613 mitzvahs through the 614. Uh, thou shalt live. That's and I think that's a, a good a good place to uh, to end. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, but when Yitz Greenberg said that the covenant is now voluntary, you know, without the mitzvot, the Jews will seek to exist very quickly. So, if it's voluntary, doesn't that contradict? It's voluntary, yeah. See, Gitzgruber tries to square the circle. And he says that, that Jews have to continue performing mitzvahs. There's no question about it. But God himself has no moral authority anymore to command us to perform the mitzvahs. At one time, he did. He was the senior partner. But if there, so, if there's no... If there's no reason to perform the mitzvah. There's no command to perform the mitzvahs. Right. It's, it's voluntary. We Jews, we choose to do so. We choose to reestablish the covenant with God. That's that's the voluntary piece of it. But that changed the whole nature of the covenant. You're right. But on more equal footing. We are not only a more equal footing, Greenberg would argue we're the senior partners at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the third stage, so... It's uh, listen. It's it's a tough thing to square, especially for you know for Jews who come out of the Orthodox world. It's 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 tough, but that's no because I, I that's when Jews give up the mitzvah, then the next step is intermarriage, and then it's total annihilation. So so that, that's why Greenberg says two things: says you you can't do that, you can't give up the mitzvah. You know, you, the Jews have to continue, you know, being traditionally observant Jews, and B uh, a. Uh, um, the only hope is, is a reassertion of what he calls power. He doesn't mean power in the JDL sense or the Kahana sense. He means exercise of political power through the state of Israel. He's not honest. Yeah, you had a question? And no? Okay, yeah, sir. Can I say Nick. Nick. Uh, just a quick little comment, and maybe you have a response. Um, to me, the Holocaust is a statement that uh, it's not about God, but I think we have to, it's a statement that. Philosophy has failed us. The European intellectual tradition 
these things are bankrupt. And they prove that today when you see these professors of history in colleges not only in Europe but in America, Harvard, University of Chicago, and they come out with anti-Semitic, uh, in spite of knowing and having access to the truth, unlike the Arabs who, you know, let's say the poor Arabs in refugee camps, they don't have access to the truth. If they become suicide bombers, I would understand. But the professors, this is why I, I think that's what the Holocaust does. I think it's a very clever observation. I think well, you well, very can you give your thought? Uh, uh, this is what the, uh, the Holocaust does. Does what? It negates uh, our trust in philosophy, in European intellectual tradition. We have to. Something else is more important than just intellect. Yeah. Well, part of the problem. Yeah, the agreement. Yeah, just something you referred to the very, very beginning. What did you think of the lips of that book? I thought it was great. Uh, Look, I got a lot of problems with, with some things that Deborah Lipstadt has written over the years. This book is a tour de force. Fabulous. The it's called trial. The Eichmann Trial by Deborah Lipstadt. L-I-P-S-T-A-D-T. Lipstadt. Lipstadt. Uh, I knew her father. He was 100% negative. Lipstadt. So, and, 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 oh, it's a, it's a terrific book. But you see, he is actually I'm doing the Eichmann trial. The Eichmann trial. And and what it is, you know, she uses the. It's brand new. Brand new. A few months ago, she she. Who wrote it? Deborah. Yeah. Lips that. L i p s t a. L i p. I'm sorry. L i p. S t. S t. A. D. T. David Thomas. Okay, and the Eichmann trial. The Eichmann trial. Right. And, 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 you know, the whole thing there is, look, it's a very kind of a cloak and dagger, cops and robbers uh, thing about how Eichmann was captured. It's, it's a great story. But um, that story's been told many times. But I see her whole thing in, in this book um, is, is the, uh, the conceit of this book has less to do with Eichmann and more to do with what happened not at the trial but after the trial with Hannah Arendt. Uh, you know, there were, there were a couple of books written about the Eichmann trial. One was written by, by Josef Hausner and it was called Justice in Jerusalem. He was the prosecutor. He was the prosecutor, exactly. He was the prosecutor. He came, actually, he came out of nowhere and he did, you know, did whatever his job, but he wrote a very good book. It was an excellent book. Nobody remembers that book. The other book that was written was by Hannah Arendt, who's, you know, with all respect to Anna Arendt's intellect, you know, she was brilliant, but she was a machshefa, really, you know. And she was she was commissioned by the, by the, the New Yorker magazine to cover the trial for them, and she wrote a long essay in the New Yorker, which she ultimately published as a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. And this, the subtitle was a report on the banality of evil. So her whole thing was, you know, the banality of evil was the thing that got all the press, you know, that you know, Ackman was just enough cog in the wheel, you know, was he guilty, was he not, you know, blah blah blah. blah. But forget about that. That was what got all the attention. But the real uh, evil in her own book was the that she engaged in blaming the victim of the worst sort. That the Jewish councils, the Judenrate, were uh, were collaborators with the Nazis, which is baloney. 
Um, uh, you know, the, the question of the Yudenrat, the, the, the Jewish councils in the, in the cities and the ghettos, it's a, it's a difficult question. Arendt um, paints the world with this terrible brush, and by extension, that the Jews themselves were responsible for their own destruction, and such a, you know, very, very important, very influential book. And, and what, what Debbie Lipstadt does in her book, which is a terrific book, by the way, it's, it's very well researched, very careful, and it's very readable, she knows. But what she does in this book, it's all closed, is she rescues the Eichmann trial, and by extension, the Holocaust from Hannah Arendt. Because Hannah Arendt, unfortunately, for many decades, hijacked the, the trial and the Holocaust. And, 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 you know, who knows what was going on? She was a Jewish person, you know, Hannah Arendt had a, an affair for many years with her own professor, Martin Heidegger, who was, you know, 100% a Nazi, 100%. He was a member of the party. So who knows what was going on with her? And, she, and so for, for, for many years, because of Arendt, there was this whole cloud of all. So that, that's the... That's, um, um, the contribution, I think, of, of this book. The book's worth reading. Yeah. Um, 